I should have given you a little warning this morning about tonight's message. I had to bring a different Bible. Because your Bible doesn't have this in it unless you have this one. We're going to be studying 1st, 2nd, and 3rd Maccabees tonight. That's, those are the so-called apocryphal, some of the apocryphal books. Uh, when we did our study on God's Word, we talked about the apocryphal books and their presence or absence from the canon of Scripture. Uh, the Eastern Orthodox Church includes them. Catholic Church includes them. Most Protestant Church Bibles do not, which is what King James and most of those are. Uh, we talk about those. And so, um, to really complete this series on, and to, to bring it, we're not completing it tonight, but to, to really be full and make sure we cover all of our bases, we really need to address uh, the other part of the Israelite calendar. Uh, it would have been in place by, at, during the time of Jesus, which is why it is worthwhile for us to have some information about it. It's still being practiced today uh, in Israel and here in the United States, although it's taken up some interesting things uh, since in the last hundred years in the United States, especially directing that. We already talked about our celebration of the Lord's birth and how what we conceive of that is really a modern phenomenon really derived out of the Western Church, mostly the United States, but also some of the Europeans. And it really wasn't something that was practiced in the manner in which we think of it being practiced, of giving gifts and the carols and all that, um, let alone the Santa Claus and all the other accoutrements, Christmas trees, things like that. That's really a pretty modern thing, and... Uh, there are some other aspects of this celebration that are also been modern additions to it, and we'll we'll talk a little bit about that. But we want to look at the uh, context of where this is coming from. I'm not going to try to resolve the issue of whether the Maccabees and any other apocryphal books belong in our canon of Scripture. Uh, I'm not going to really. I've addressed that in the past, um, and um, and we're not going to deal with it now. We just need to recognize that in the Jewish community there's still um, attestation to it. There's still a following of it. Uh, let me just overview though the, what the Maccabees books are about. They are historical books along the line of 1st, 2nd Kings, 1st, 2nd Chronicles, 1st, 2nd Samuel. Those books that you're more familiar with as well as maybe Ezra, Nehemiah, that kind of nature. They're all, they're, they're historical record. And uh, one of the things I will say regarding the canonicity of why it is largely rejected uh, in, in pro um, uh, one aspect that is going to influence a little bit of our study on times and seasons is something that is attested to within the very book of Maccabees. We can talk about, well, how do we define what is scripture, what is uh, extra biblical, what is inspired by God and what is not. And one of the things um, that I think is of really strong note is that in its own attestation, in other words, what the book of Maccabees says about itself is that this is a time period where there no, were no prophets. Um, it, it says that itself about itself that... 
And when a book says that this is the time period when there were no prophets in the land. Now, are there other things recorded in the book of Maccabees? Certainly, um, there are prayers uh, recorded. And the people are praying out to God for deliverance on various occasions. We have those prayers recorded for us there. Um, but in terms of prophets, we don't see, uh, by, by their own statement, there were no prophets in the land. Uh, much of the Maccabean period is during the Greek period, uh, well, all of it, is in the Greek period, uh, would be post-Daniel, the, after the Medes and Persians. Uh, it would have been specifically during the time of Antiochus Epiphanes. Uh, and so this is a time, a very, very dark time for Israel in terms of being under the thumb of the judgment of God. And, uh, we, and they, again, in the book itself, says there were no prophets in the land. This is a time of silence. And outside of the evidence that God delivers them, we don't really see someone coming forward and saying, thus says the Lord. You just won't find that in these books. Thus says the Lord. Rather, it is, but it is a, a record of a period of time that is worthy of our read. That We should know what happened during those, that period of time. And uh, from all evidence, this is a pretty faithful record of that, of that period. Um, and you'll see Jewish people that are very critical of the books. You'll see them very acclaimed of it. And we're just going to take it as uh, historical uh, information. We have no uh, New Testament uh, citing of this book. Or any of these books, the three books uh, of the Maccabees, uh, but certainly we uh, have them available to us in a large portion of of uh, the larger concept of the church. Christian church has them, and the Jewish community has them. So let's look at this. I'm really just going to recognize that I have to read for you um, these passages. And why am I going here? Well. I'm referring to the season uh, or the event that we know as, as Hanukkah. And that is the purification of the temple. Remember, the temple was rebuilt under Ezra and Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel led that back to rebuild the temple. Uh, we have that recorded for us in the book of Ezra. Uh, under Nehemiah, the walls were rebuilt. And that was all during the Persian period. And of course, Alexander the Great conquers this area uh, wins victory over Jerusalem without a fight because Jerusalem read in the prophets that said, listen, uh, when you see this, and, and so they went out and met him in white. God had already put in Alexander the Great's uh, mind through a dream that when you come to a city and he describes a city and everyone approaches you dressed in white, that this is the city of God. And so Alexander the Great doesn't attack the city and uh, they have a union. But, of course, Alexander the Great uh, died without an heir. And so his kingdom was divided between his four generals, and Jerusalem fell right between two of them, uh, between the Ptolemies, which is largely Egypt, and the Seleucid, which is largely Syria and north. And so they became kind of a battleground area between them and largely under the Seleucid Empire with the Antiochuses. And, and you'll see all these Greek names, because this is a Greek kingdom, but it was divided into four kingdoms. And so the Ptolemies, uh, it starts with the P, P-T, but the P is silent, uh, were Egypt. And when you think of the Ptolemies, 
Uh, you should think of people like Cleopatra, okay? That's what we're talking about. That, that's when you think, now, there are lots of Cleopatras. There's like Cleopatra the first, second, third, fourth, just like they were told, you know, Antiochus. And so there was lots of them. Um, the Cleopatra and Mark Anthony that you know of would have been later. That's the Roman period. Um, but that was born out of the period of the Ptolemies, and so in Egypt. So some of Maccabees, you're dealing with the Egyptian Greeks, and sometimes you're dealing with the Syrian Greeks uh, and at various places. But uh, really, what Hanukkah is built around is really happens in the very, very front end of all of this. And so really in chapter 1 and 2 and extending into chapter 4 is as far as you have to get in 1 Maccabees to find out the, the entirety of the story of what was going on. And what had happened is Antiochus Epiphanes, after he had gotten a little humiliation by the Ptolemies south of Jerusalem, trying to invade them, on his way back was kind of miffed and went in and took it out on Jerusalem. And in the midst of that, he desecrated the temple. He's, and this was prophesied that there would be the abomination that caused desolation. Now, are we looking for that to happen again? Yes, the Bible says there's going to be another abomination that caused desolation. Uh, there's actually three of them. There's once under Antiochus Epiphanes, the Greeks, once under Titus at 70 AD, and another time in the future uh, by the man of sin. Of course, that temple hasn't been built yet. And uh, all the preparations for that are being made, but the circumstances haven't been aligned to actually have them built. And for that reason, a lot of people think, well, the Lord can't come because of the uh, things going on in the Temple Mount. Um, but the preparations are there, and it would not take very long for Israel to implement them given access to the Temple Mount. Uh, and that's always an exciting part of the news to watch is what's going on in Jerusalem. So, um, Antiochus Epiphanes was that first manifestation of the abomination of desolation. He goes in and desolates the temple, sets up, and they're offering pig sacrifices there, which is something the Romans did as well under Titus. Uh, they tore down and destroyed every copy of the God's law that they found. They destroyed. Um, they, they just desecrated everything. It wasn't a destruction of the building. It was a, is a profaneness of all that was going on there. And so they put, you know, uh, they just put all these false sacrifices. They set up idols there. Uh, they did all of this. And uh, then they insisted on the people of Jerusalem abandoning their Judaism, abandoning their God and his worship, and worship the gods of the Greeks. Particularly Antiochus Epiphanes, because he demanded worship of himself to a degree as well. And so there was... Uh, a division among Israel, uh, as you would expect. There were the compliant ones that just went along. There were the ones that uh, were complicit. They, they helped the Greeks. Again, a lot of those were still thinking, uh, you know, that you would call them secular Jews. Uh, they, they weren't really tied into the religious teachings anyway. And so they saw all the benefits they could get from being complicit with the Greeks. And then you had those that were, just a, that, that were the, the fundamentalists, you would call them, uh, and uh, that said this is wrong, 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 wrong. Um, and many of them died if they didn't. And that's what I'm talking about. You do this or die. 
And so there was these three groups. There was those that joined the Greeks. There were those who, who just capitulated because they didn't want to die. And then there were those who said, no, we are not going to participate in any of that. And, and that group was eventually led by a man named Mattathias. And again, if you don't have access and opportunity to read this, um, let me read a little bit of this. Um, and, and by the way, the, the conquest of Jerusalem and the desecration of it wasn't just a religious thing. Um, if you didn't participate, they were hideously cruel to you. Uh, this was not just die um, uh, a seamless death or, or just a quick death. Um, they, um, if they found, if you circumcise your child, let's just give an example. If they, if they found a Jewish woman submitting her child for circumcision on the eighth day according to the law, because they weren't allowed to keep any of the law. That was Antioch's epitome. He says, no keeping the law, zero. So if they caught a woman submitting her child, her male's child for circumcision, they would kill that child, hang it around the mother's neck, and then kill her, hang her by, with her child. And so very cruel and just very blatantly out there. Um, uh, and, and so, but even with all of those cruelties and things implemented, um, there was a growing group out here that were adamant we're going to stand for truth, no matter the cost. And it was costly. Uh, and then we fall upon a guy named Mattathias. And here's another problem of this period. Okay, so how long has Israel been outside of the land, if you will? Well, they were outside the land for 70 years, right? Came back, and now we are transitioning to the Greek period, and those are the years that are going to be listed there when we've come back in. But they have absorbed... In their, in their being out in Babylon and Persia, um, in Syria as well, under the Assyrians, in being out in the world, they have absorbed some of the language and patterns of the world, and they have also moved away from and been ignorant of the law to some degree. And so there is a group out there that are really pushing for this. And let's just give you, since I gave you an example of the one, uh, I'll try to give you examples of the other one. Um, they, would, they had adopted the names of months. They were all Babylonian. We talked about that, uh, I think, last two weeks ago, that when you talk about the months in the Hebrew calendar, and Mrs. Fry brought me a Hebrew calendar this morning, and so the months are all listed there. Uh, and though all those names of the months, except for one, is Babylonian. The only one that is biblical is Nisan. All the rest are numbered, 2nd, 3rd, 4th, 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th, 9th, 10th. So they're all numbered. They're not named until the Babylonian captivity. And so you have all this influence of Babylon on Israel, and it is noteworthy of its place here, that these people are, are influenced by that. And we, we see it. And so we have the Hellenistic Jews. Now, what does that mean to you, Hellenistic they're Greek. Hellenist means Greek-speaking and influenced by the Greek culture. When we get to the book of Acts, we're going to deal with a guy named Stephen, who his primary ministry is to the Hellenistic synagogues. He goes and speaks to the Greek Jews. And some of those 
Pharisees and Sadducees would have seen those Jews as not real Jews because they participated with the Greeks and they took on Greek culture. Some of them were Greeks who, who um, converted to Judaism, um, but many of them were Jews who adopted Greek life. And so Hellenist, Hellenisms are going to be present just as there are Babylonianisms in Israel after their captivity that are going to influence that. And so we're going to see some of that here as well. So all of this kind of combined, uh, we now know a little history coming in, and we are going to look at, we're not going to look at the whole accounts. We're really just going to look at what is it that we're celebrating at Hanukkah. So let me begin in chapter 2, because the first words are the, in those days. All right, and so in those days, when this is all the problem, here's what was going on. Mattathias, the son of John, of the tribe of Simeon, a priest of the sons of Joarib, rose up from Jerusalem and settled in Modane. Okay, what's, you immediately should have a problem, right? What's his tribe? His tribe is Simeon, but he is a priest. So that should immediately throw up red flags, right? Do, 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 do. And so all the people we're going to talk about are described as priests. Because not only is it Mattathias, it's going to be all of his sons. He has five sons. And they're going to be named here in verse 2 of chapter 2 of First Maccabees. And so he has five sons, and um, they're serving as priests uh, about uh, 15, 20 miles outside of Jerusalem, Modane. And so uh, they're there, and they are... Um, upset about all that's going on, and they refuse to participate, and he calls for everyone in his city and his region to follow him into the mountains in, in uh, rebellion against the idea of not calling or not uh, following the law. So uh, he, he leaves Jerusalem, he goes to Modane, and then in the course of all of this, he's going to even leave Modane and go into the mountains. And so he has his five sons, he looks at the blasphemies of what's going on in Jerusalem uh, under Antiochus Epiphanes, and he's going to lead a rebellion. Now, uh, he is not going to complete this. He is going to die pretty soon. Uh, he insta instigates it. And so, uh, when you hear the word Hasmoneans, uh, that's the family of Mattathias. And so, who do you know that's a Hasmonean? You know anybody from that family? It's a pretty important family. You got some Herods coming out of that. Okay? Because at the end of this Maccabees, Israel's going to get her independence. And that's going to be recognized by Rome. And so that's why Israel has her own king. So you have the King Herods coming out of that. So when we set the scene for what's going on at Christ's birth and that narrative, uh, well, these, these are Hasmoneans. Well, what does that mean? It means that they are the descendants of these people who fought against the Greeks to establish Israel's independence, religiously at least, and somewhat politically, so they could rule themselves by their own laws. And that's how 3 Maccabees ends. It ends by this joyous, wondrous thing that they set up as an independent nation within an empire that they get to rule themselves by their own law as long as they send tribute and tithe to the empire. We'll let them rule themselves by their own law. It's just a better way to go. 
uh, and the king establishes that decree, and it persists even into the Roman Empire. So when you hear about that, this is where the Hasmoneans come from, that group of royalty. But they start out as priests, so-called. But they're of the tribe of Simeon. Okay? And that's listed here, if this is accurate. And we have no reason not to think that. And so, Mattathias initiates this rebellion um, against that, that they're going to, and he does it violently. Um, when he goes up in the mountains, if he encounters anyone that um, is, any Jewish people that are cooperating with the Greeks, he kills them. Okay? Uh, you would kind of think of them as the Taliban almost. <laughs> they're, they're radicals, okay? They're not going to try to convert you. You cooperate with the Greeks, they're going to kill you. And uh, that's men. And the women, they'll take the children, if they're not circumcised, they forcibly circumcise them, whether the parents have will or not. Remember, if you are caught as a circumcised child, what happens to you? You're killed. So now, you are in our situation, you've been forcibly circumcised by Mattathias' army, so if a Greek finds you, you're dead, so you might as well stay with them. It's kind of a way of, of making them part of your army, because there's no alternative. The alternative is death. If, you know, and so we, we, we think about people going out and getting uh, shanghaied. What does that term mean? We got a sailor here. What's shanghaied, Bill? Yeah, they just pick you up and they, you, sometimes, well, Shanghai is from China, really. Um, they drug you, they knock you out, whatever. You'd wake up, you'd be on board ship in the middle of the ocean, now you're part of the crew. Yeah, and, and they would just take you. Well, that's kind of what was going on here. And so he'd go up and he was forcibly um, making everyone keep the law, whether they wanted to or not. But he drew a large uh, crowd, and so he dies. Um, before we have too much going on there, other than the fact that uh, he establishes this thing and he gives this very moving speech to his five sons and he has sets them aside. And it's not this firstborn, secondborn, it's his thirdborn. He said the secondborn is a wise person. He, you should get advice from him. But it's the thirdborn whose name is Judas Maccabees. That's his Greek name is Maccabees. Judas is his Hebrew name. Judas Maccabees, he should lead your army. He has a temperament or capability identified by his dad to lead the army. So Judas leads the army, and the four brothers help him. And he has some spectacular success against the Greeks. And, and even though they have counterattacks and all this, well, once they establish themselves in that region, they say, we want to go back down to Jerusalem. And we want to liberate Jerusalem. And we want to purify Jerusalem. And so they took care of their, some of their victories. They even secured some of the outer boars against the Edomites and the Moabites and some of these other neighbors uh, to try to create themselves a little bit of breathing room. Uh, their main enemy, of course, was coming from the north, the Syrian army, the Seleucid army. Uh, they call it Syria, but under Antiochus. And so they're taking that on and having great success, and again, they're all doing it in the name of God, and praying to him in the course of this. And so, um, once they establish some presence there, 
they, they fall back onto Jerusalem. And we just want to see a little bit of what occurs there. And so I'm just going to read a portion of this. I know you don't have it before you, and uh, we're going to, I'll just read a pretty significant portion, but it's the history there. So Judas and his brothers with him said, Behold, our foes have been crushed. Let us go up to purify the sanctuary and renew it. Thus the entire camp gathered and ascended to Mount Zion. They saw there the sanctuary deserted, the altar desecrated, and the doors burned down. In the courtyard they found that bushes had grown up in a, as in a wooded area, or on one of the mountains. They also saw the priest's quarters in ruins. So they tore their garments and lamented greatly and sprinkled themselves with ashes. They fell on their faces on the earth, sounded the signal on the trumpets, and cried to heaven. Then Judas ordered his men to fight those in the citadel until he purified the sanctuary. He chose righteous priests devoted to the law. They purified the sanctuary and carried the defiled stones to an unclean place. So anything that had pig's blood on it, they would extract and carry off and dispose of and replace, is what was going on. It seemed to them the best plan was to tear it down so it would not be a reproach to them because the Gentiles had corrupted it, so they tore down the altar. They also stacked the stones in an appropriate location on the temple hill until a prophet would come and tell them what should be done with them. There was no prophet involved in this. No one was there saying, thus says the Lord. This is one of the places it declares that. They were just doing this. They thought it would be good. They didn't have any divine instruction in this area. They took uncut stones according to the law and constructed a new altar like the one before. They also repaired the sanctuary and the inside of the temple and consecrated the courtyards. They made new holy vessels and carried the lampstand and the altar of incense and the table into the temple. That's the three pieces of furniture that go inside the holy place of the temple, right? So you have the altar of incense, the lampstand, and the table showbread. Those three pieces. It says, And they burnt incense on the altar and lit the lights on the lampstands, and these gave light inside the temple. Then they set bread on the table, hung the curtains, and completed all the tasks they had begun. So they had consecrated it, and then they renewed the, the furniture, and they lit the lamp, they burnt incense on the on the altar of incense, and they set the table. So everything was set up and ready for worship, true worship. And so verse 52 says, They rose early on the morning of the 25th day of the ninth month, which is the month Chislev, in the 148th year, and offered sacrifice according to the law on the new altar of burnt offerings which they made. It was consecrated with songs and harps, and lutes and cymbals at the time, and on the day the Gentiles had desecrated it. And so they wanted to do all this. They wanted to purify it on the same time, it was the 25th of a month, that it was desecrated, and now they wanted to consecrate it on the same date. So hence the 25th of the ninth month. It says that they, uh, all the people fell down and worshiped. They blessed heaven, which had prospered them. They celebrated the consecration of the altar for eight days, and they offered whole burnt offerings with gladness and the sacrifice of a peace offering and a thank offering. They also adorned the face of the temple with crowns of gold and small shields and restored the gates and the priest's quarters and installed doors. There was great gladness among the people and the disgrace of the Gentiles was removed. Then Judas 
and his brothers and the congregation of Israel decide that each year at that time the days of the consecration of the altar should be observed with joy and gladness for eight full days beginning on the 25th of the month of Chislev. Um, and then it goes on to talk about how they fortified the, the place and then went further into the battles that ensued because of their work there. And they had great victories. And so we, this is the event that has brought forth the celebration we call today Hanukkah or Shanuk. Shanukah. Anyway, there's another term they use for it as well. So it's an eight-day celebration. Now, when you hear Jews describe this, what do they always talk about? Why is it eight days? The legend, and it is pure legend, is not anywhere in the Maccabees. It is pure legend. Is that when they came in, they only found one jar, one day's supply of oil to light the lamp in the holy place. They only found one jar. Doesn't say that anywhere in here. That was the legend. And that that one jar, when they used it, didn't get used up the first day. It stayed for eight days till they could make more. And so it, so one day's supply lasted eight days, and that's why they celebrate eight days of Hanukkah. Nowhere is that in the book of Maccabees. That is pure legend that has been introduced. Do we have any pure legend in our celebrations and worships? Probably, yeah. <laughs> he says yes. So don't fault them too much, all right? And so uh, when we look at this, this is, the, this is the actual, there's no more. There's no further statements about it. There's no more further developments of that. This is the full account of it. You'll find it being kept, but you won't find any further information. So this is Hanukkah. We are celebrating the purification of the temple after Antiochus Epiphanes defiled it and the reinstitution of this worship by this family that has become be known as the Maccabees, uh, named after Judas Maccabees um, and Mattathias, the Hasmoneans. And, of course, they're going to take on more of a kingly role and less of a priestly role, but they still maintain that they are priests all the way through 1st, 2nd, 3rd Maccabees. Even to the very end, they claim a claim to priesthood, even though they're not of the tribe of Levi. And so we find that um, that's what we're celebrating. Now, when is the 25th of Chislev? Everybody knows, right? You know what Hanukkah is. When is Hanukkah? Somewhere around Christmas. Okay, they're celebrating Hanukkah, and they say, oh, it's the Jewish Christmas. No, it's not. It's this, and it, and it predates Christmas by a lot. All right, and so Hanukkah is an eight-day celebration um, that you would identify happening mid to late December. And it's kind of interesting that the first, day, the, the first day of the celebration is always what date? The 25th of Chislev. Do you think that's a mistake, that 25th of December, we celebrate Christ's birth? In fact, um, what we find from the evidence of Scripture, the year of Christ's birth, the Magi, if they arrived, 
during this period of time would have arrived during Hanukkah and would have been in Jerusalem probably from the 25th of December into January during that time of Hanukkah. And so their, their activity and their arrival would have been during a time of great celebration in Israel uh, that uh, was associated with a, the Jewish month, the 25th of Chislev. And so when we look at this, this is where that connection happens. And so uh, we took a Jewish holiday and kind of hijacked it a little bit. Probably uh, there's good evidence in the stars of 3 to 2 B.C., the, probably 2 B.C. 3 B.C. we said was Christ's birth. We saw that in the sun, moon, and the stars arrangement. Uh, we even went down to September 11th between 6 and 7.30 because of the movement of the moon through the constellation Virgo. And that, that happens very quickly. And so the description in Revelation 12 of that puts it in this very specific time frame. And so um, we can look and we can say, well, at 3 uh, we go into the months Chislev, and what are the Magi following? What are they seeing? What are they seeing? They're, they're seeing this in the constellation, and they have a history with the Jews. Do you understand that? We have a Babylonian history with the Jews. And a very distinct, although some people say, well, they're from way out farther in Asia. Uh, even the Filipinos have a tradition that one of the Magi came from the Philippines. So... Um, we can all claim it if you're anywhere from the east. Um, but Israelite influence over the east is, is not unknown, right? So the Chaldeans had it, that influence extensively. And then certainly farther out, and the Indians claim that one of the Magi was from India. I mean, they all do. So uh, there's only three Magi, so it's getting pretty hard. But they're from the east. So something east of Jerusalem, and everyone east of Jerusalem can claim that. Um, I'm waiting for some Alaskan Eskimos to say, one of us was there. Um, but <laughs> so we find that their arrival, and either 3 or 2, but particularly in 2 B.C., we see um, some evidences um, that uh, the Magi would have arrived during Hanukkah. And so here during Hanukkah, you have a Hasmonean king being told by these magi from the east, we don't know if there's three, there could have been a lot more, right? We just, we just know there's three gifts. We don't know if there are three magi. There might have been one from every nation, who knows, but probably from one nation. But here they come. And Pegasus, he was born king of the Jews. Now, that's an upsetting thing. Because, remember, the Hasmoneans were granted it by Rome. First by Greece and then by Rome, they were granted that independence, and Rome dictated that. But that's what, when the Magi arrived, they're saying, whereas he was born king of the Jews during the celebration of Israel's independence. Hanukkah, of the purification of the temple. Now, the actual independence is not going to happen at Hanukkah. But it's the beginning. And so this is the beginning of the book of Maccabees. This is in the first four or five chapters. You're going to read all of this. And it's not going to culminate for many years. In fact, uh, 
Judas Maccabeus is going to die. His, the, his, one of his brothers is going to take over. He's going to die. Then two of the brothers. I mean, so the, the five Maccabean brothers are going to, we're going to go through them. They're going to, they're going to all fulfill those roles. And, um, and, and so the time period we're talking about here um, is not like kings where you, or chronicles where you're going through this guy reigned for this many years and this guy took over. These were all in the same generation. These five brothers were getting killed, imprisoned, all those things, carried away captive, things like that, all during that same generation. But uh, it is going to culminate in their independence. And so for Israel, they see Hanukkah not only as a celebration of the purification of the temple, but the beginning of what would come to be their independence uh, in the Greek Empire and then adopted into the Roman Empire. And that's what they're identifying that as. And so here come. And so when we see this, um, are there legends around that? Yes. Um, but what we're really doing is eight days to celebrate this. We have an exact date here given as the 25th of Chislev. And so this is a lot more precise for us um, than maybe some others. Remember, this the Babylonian influence dates and the Greek influence dates. And so we are giving it. Now, we have had a question mark, right, about when is the new moon, when does the month start? Correct? So when is the 25th of Chislev? Depends upon when the new moon is, right? Is the new moon the full moon, or is the new moon the new moon? What we call a new moon, the dark moon. And we've challenged that, and I, I hope I've successfully challenged that in your mind, that in biblical times, the new moon was understood to be the full moon, which makes us 14 days off. Now, were they 14 days off there? No. In Jesus' time, were they 14 days off? When did that 14 days get messed up? And is not in the intertestamental period, as many people want to say, because then all the events of Jesus would have been skewed, right? Jesus would not have been sacrificed on the Passover because he would have been off by two weeks. It happened um, after 70 AD, all right? Because we really have a great big dark period in Israel's history, another dark period in Israel's history, where they are scattered among the nations for a long period of time until we have a group of Jewish scholars who are going to or revive and, and bring forth the Old Testament that your Bible is based off of. Uh, this Bible is not. Okay, this is the Septuagint. This is the Greek. Uh, trans, this is the Greek Old Testament translated to English. It's the Septuagint. And so um, that hasn't been influenced by these Jewish non-Christian scholars. And so what we understand this to be is very, might be very different than what Jesus, the apostles, the Greeks, and all this. So the 25th of Chislev can be 14 days earlier or later than what they're celebrating today. Because their concept of a new moon, according to David in Psalms, is it's bright. It, you can see by it. It's a full moon. That the month begins with a full moon, not a dark moon. That is what a Hebrew person meant by a new moon. 
very different than what we mean by a new moon because we say a new moon is dark. But God did not create a dark moon. He created a full moon at creation. That would have been the beginning, the first moon. would have been full of light, not absent of light. And so we look at this and we say, okay, so the 25th of Chislev, we're going to have an eight-day celebration. Uh, and really the legend about the oil is to explain why was it eight days? Well, are there any other celebrations of Israel that are eight days? Which one? Okay, Passover, Feast of Unleavened Bread, combined to make eight days. What other one? Yes. The eighth day they get circumcised. That is true. But I'm talking about an eight-day celebration where they start at one day and you end another day, eight days later. Feast of Tabernacles. Remember, eight days. So you're doing all these things. And so they have taken something out of the law, and I don't think we need any legend about oil not running out for eight days, and that's why they celebrate eight days. They are taking this as being, this is a significant, so significant that we want to take the celebration of Passover, Feast of the Bread, we're going we're gonna to bring it here, and we're going to add this in because we are, we are celebrating the renewal of the covenant, of our worship of Jehovah of God in the temple, and we want to use that eight days of purification. Was the eight days just celebratory? Not in the text. In the text, during those eight days, they were still engaged in all the rebuilding. And so another ex- reason that it went eight days is that that was the... On the 24th of Chislev, they had set up the holy place, right? They had the lampstand, the, the incense, and the showbread all in place. So the first thing in the morning on the 25th, they went in and started serving it. But for the eight days, they were fixing everything beyond it. Do you notice that while I was reading it? You may not have had a chance. Let me back up here. So they had the consecration uh, for eight days. It says they adored the, fa- they adorned the face of the temple, the crowns, restored the gates, priest corps installed the doors uh, during those eight days. So in eight days uh, began with the holy place and then they were building and, and beautifying the rest of it, the outer courtyard and, the, and all of that during those eight days. So that by the eighth day, they had completed what they wanted to accomplish there. And so we have this purification uh, celebrated, and there's lots of reasons to say it was eight days other than trying to say, they had a little vask of oil, it lasted eight days, it shouldn't have lasted. Um, and, but yet that legend persists to this day extensively. But it's nowhere in the text. And so, is it all right for us to celebrate Hanukkah? Should we add that to our calendar, is the question. Because that's been the question all the time. We're studying biblical times and seasons. Should this be something that we should be celebrating? I'll throw that out at you. Okay, it's not in the law, right? 
Okay. There was another one that we just died two weeks ago that was, at, that was outside of the law, and that was Purim. Right? Did we conclude that we need to add Purim to our celebration, to our calendar? What did we conclude? Do you remember two weeks ago? All right, Purim says we welcome all of you to join us in our celebration of God's deliverance of his people um, during the time of Artaxerxes. But it is uniquely there, um, and we don't find it connected to any of God's purposes in Christ in the New Testament. Is it a joyous celebration? Yes. Uh, is it something that we can look to and see some powerful deliverance and things like that? Yes. Does it call us to participate there as part of our annual celebrations in which we are seeing work of Christ emulated in them? And I would contend no. And similarly with Hanukkah, I would contend that this is a, a, of national importance to them. It is the purification of the temple that Jesus would walk in. Okay, this is, the, this is the temple we're talking about. is the temple that Jesus was going to be teaching in uh, in a few, few years. <laughs> Quite a few years. So this is, so um, it was necessary. Certainly there is some evidence here that God enabled that to happen, that God also wanted Israel to be independent so that Jesus Christ could come upon the scene. And if you want to take that perspective on that, I'm okay with that, and, and, and uh, if you want to light your menorah and your eight candles, your eight lights, um, I'm not going to say you're wrong, just like celebrating Purim isn't wrong, um, but I, to find Christological information here uh, is our goal. Remember, our goal is, is that if it's here in Scripture for the Israel, there should be a Christological element that calls us to it for the church to participate in it. And we have found that every single one of the ones in the law have strong Christological elements to them, don't they? Um, either in the events of Christ or the promises of God in Christ. And so Pentecost, well, of course we're gonna, we should be celebrating Pentecost. Shame of us for not celebrating Pentecost. Why are we giving that over to Pentecostal churches is beyond me, that somehow we don't celebrate the coming of the Holy Spirit on a legal, legal by Old Testament law, um, command. We should be celebrating these. Feast of Tabernacles, we saw the idea that Christ was born in the context of that, that he tabernacled with us. We should be celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles as an appropriate time to be celebrating Christ's birth. Feast of Trumpets, we talked about that as a future looking for Israel, future looking for us, the gathering of God together of his people. Feast of Atonement, we talked about that. Not the Feast of Atonement. <laughs> the Day of Atonement, the one that's not a feast. The morning of the day. Why should we do that, Day of Atonement? Because we remind ourselves that there must be a humbling before God for, his, for us to receive his redemption. We looked at the law ones and we see direct correlation to Christological and salvific things the church should be celebrating. Feast of Purim, that's something for Israel as a nation. It'd be very similar today. Uh, should you be celebrating the end of the, what is it, the Seven Day War? What was it when Israel's independence? Uh, 
Eight day, nine day. What was it? The, the Israelite independence things, the conquering, the, the, I mean, these are all celebrations in Israel today. They have their Memorial Day, their Independence Day. Uh, they also have their Jerusalem Day when they liberated Jerusalem and they, and they sent in the paratroopers and they liberated it and from the country of Jordan and, and they set the covenant then with Jordan and made the border of the Jordan River. And so they celebrate all these things and it's okay if you want to celebrate Jewish hol- or Israelite holidays, but they're celebrating the modern deliverance of Israel uh, they have Holocaust Day. You can celebrate. You can go through the calendar of Israel today, um, and you can celebrate any of those you want with them. But when we look at the church's calendar, what times and seasons has God established that he calls us to participate in because of its Christological nature? Um, I don't see Hanukkah nor the period. Now, the only thing I can do is to connect the Magi, and that's what I'm trying to do. If there's any force, if there's anything that might encourage us to celebrate aspects of Christ's birth narrative in that period of time, uh, it would be more appropriate to do it within Hanukkah, uh, within that period of time, uh, or traditionally from 25th to January 8th, those 12 days, um, the likelihood of them arriving and leaving Jerusalem and leaving Bethlehem in a very short period of time just isn't valid. You make that long of a trip. Um, and so uh, their presence in the region for 12 days is not unheard of. Um, hence, we have three Kings Day on January 8th, uh, and that's where we get that. Is And there's strong evidence um, in the... In the um, astronomically for that, uh, that people have made and made very well, and that would evidence the Magi. But in terms of Hanukkah itself, being uh, that we should engage in that, um, I'm not going to say I'm against that, but it doesn't fit into an, a Christian, a Christologically centered um, element outside the fact that this is the temple, the purification of the temple for Christ's time, the temple that Christ would be involved in. Um, but, we, but this is very similar to the reconstruction of the temple under Zerubbabel and that dedication period. Um, we, have, we have the dedication of the, of the original temple under Solomon, so there have been lots of dedications of the temple. Um, this is just the one that they're celebrating. Does this temple stand? The temple they dedicated doesn't exist. It was leveled under Timothy, right? Under Timothy. <laughs> under t- t- Emperor Titus, sorry. And, so, you know, Timothy and Titus, those are all biblical names. You get them together. Um, under Titus. And so we look at these and we can say, well, it's okay. Yes, it is okay. And I'm not going to sit there and take issue with you. I'll just smile and say, oh, that's fine. You want to celebrate that. Make sure you know what you're celebrating. But are we going to bring it into the church's calendar? And that's what I've been advocating all the way through this. Our church calendar should reflect a biblical celebrations. And, um, if, and that's why for my family, we celebrate Three Kings Day, January 8th. And we have done that for a number of years now. And, and, we, 
and a lot of people I've encountered throughout my ministry, not only here in the States, but around the world, have really taken issue with the uh, celebration of Christ's birth on what they view as a pagan period of time, uh, of December 25th. And, and the, uh, they've been associating it with Nimrod and some other uh, pagan rituals that are happening between December 21st and 25th. Um, but understand Hanukkah is what we're looking at. We're looking at, at the period of, of Hanukkah, not of, and we know those exact dates. We just don't know when Chislev started or ended, right? So we're within two weeks of it, at least. And so we um, want to be guarded in our attempt to justify December 25th with Hanukkah and the arrival of the Magi. Uh, we need to be a little guarded. There isn't direct evidence of that. Uh, there is some evidence, but it is derived largely um, and um, of when the Magi actually arrived. And is that something that we need to put on our calendar as the arrival of the Magi? This is the question. Is that of significance enough that we need to add that to our calendar? Uh, and we enjoy the giving of gifts, which the Magi are the bringers of the gifts, and that correlates with the modern exercise of Hanukkah. But the giving of gifts, they give a gift each day. So for eight days, they give a gift. That's not stipulated in Maccabees at all. Okay? They're just celebrating with joy and gladness for eight days for the, for the purification and the, and the restoration of the temple from the uh, desolation of Antiochus Epiphanes. Okay? And so the gift-giving is something more modern, and it's not historically there. And, uh, and, but the Magi's arrival certainly um, is associated with the gift-giving. And, and so I do defend it on that basis, and I admit to everybody it's pretty flimsy. And should we be celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles and the good biblical evidence that it was September 11th, yes, we should. Do we abandon celebration? Um, well, I'm trying to give you some basis by which you can maybe on a flimsy, weak, shaky platform continue that. Uh, and, and again, if you want to celebrate the Magi arrival during Hanukkah and extending it beyond that, um, I'm not going to say you're sinning at all. Okay, but I don't, if you're on the internet too much uh, with and ask these questions, you're going to come up with all these people. And we've had people coming in, filtering through my ministry, both in Rio Rancho and here, that are anti December 25th, anti the term Christmas, anti that, and they will not. And they come in, they see a Christmas tree, and they turn around and leave. Okay, and uh, because they've made that the definition of true Christianity, will not participate in this because they have so strongly had it associated with pagan elements. Are there pagan elements been attached to Passover and Feast of Unleavened Bread, Resurrection Sunday? Yes. Do we abandon it? No. Do we get rid of some of those pagan elements? Sure. 
I don't know what rabbits and eggs have to do with it at all, frankly, anyway. Um, but do we don't throw out the baby with the bathwater? Uh, we need to cleanse it of those and make it a godly and, and rightful celebration. Um, but I wanted to, because people have said, well, what about Hanukkah? Why aren't we doing that? Well, this is why. Okay, so we have some internal evidence. We have some uh, examples there out of Feast of Purim as well. We already want, we want to apply that here as well. And we just don't find the Christological center of this like we do the other holidays on the, the laws, um, the holy days that God established. Um, Purim is man's establishment. Mordecai established that and Esther established that. Um, Hanukkah, uh, the Maccabees established that. Um, but um, God established these other ones. And that's why our focus and attention needs to be on those. It doesn't mean we have to ignore the others. It simply means that we don't emphasize those while ignoring the ones we should be engaging in. Does that make sense? Clear as mud? Okay. Well, I've gone really long. Oh, I'm so sorry. I never looked at the clock. You don't have any questions because you're ready to go to bed. Yes? It's not, right. Some of the modern activities in Hanukkah are very distinctly American or westernized. Um, but the, the dates and the reason are not associated with any of these other things, including any of the pagan concepts that are being propagated out there. And, um, and so I don't apologize for it, but I would like to see us as a church be more emphatic in our celebration of uh, tabernacles and uh, atonement and trumpets in the fall, which would be September coming up, late August into September. I'm planning a big September 11th party at my place. So it's a Saturday. Or Friday night at sunset if you want to come then. We could party all, all night, all day. Okay, let's have a prayer. It's gone very late. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. Thank you again for this opportunity to look uh, into your truth. And we thank you for this record of these events uh, during this intertestamental period. Um, and Lord, we thank you for the evidence of your hand of delivering Israel. Even as we have seen that evidence in these last 75 years of how you've delivered your people and established this nation. And we glorify your name for this. Uh, that you did it in history, that you're doing it today, uh, that you have a purpose established for her, and, and we do not hesitate to give you praise for that. We look forward to its conclusion that is coming upon us very quickly, and we pray that uh, you might help us to seek to honor and glorify your name, and uh, we just thank you for the opportunity to, to make better decisions with fuller information and our recognition that what the state wants to do is to have us celebrate all the wrong things at the wrong times. And we see that in Daniel where he says, I want to change the times and the seasons. And Lord, help us to keep your seasons and your times to your glory. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.